Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. So do you have any Bible stories that stand out to you and they come across to you as sort of out of place in Scripture? I can think of several And many of them we have come across together as we went through the book of Genesis. Remember back to when we had that awkward story of the sons of Jacob slaughtering the people of Shechem after they'd been circumcised. That whole story is rather different from top to bottom, but yet we found that there was a reason that Moses had put it into Holy Scripture. Now, there are others that we could bring up, everything from Judah impregnating his daughter-in-law when he didn't realize it was her, he thought she was a prostitute, or we might even remember Sarah banishing Hagar and Ishmael from their community. These are different stories. We wonder why they're there. And these are just a few quick examples that I remember from one book of the Bible off the top of my head. Now, you probably have a few more like the bears that mauled the children when they mocked the prophet, uh, prophet Elisha, or maybe when the wife of Moses performs the circumcision on their sons. Now, we'll come into contact with that story sometime in the future, because when we're done with this section of Luke we're in, we're going to go to Exodus. I don't know how quickly we will come up on that. We have to get through the plagues and such. But eventually, we're going to have to deal with that awkward, strange story as well. And let me tell you, I'm really excited about that one. Anyway, I say that jokingly, but in truth, I really do like processing through some of these interesting, awkward stories. A lot of it is, often I have positive responses from you all, saying, you know, I always wondered about that story. Thank you for giving me an understanding of of why that's there. We wonder, naturally, why some of these passages are in our Bibles. Well, today we come upon an interesting story as we come back to the book of Luke after my absence. While this one isn't quite as spicy as some of the stories we've seen, uh, this is an interesting story, especially after we just saw Jesus calm a storm. We go from arguably one of the most amazing miracles that Jesus does to one that seems really random to us. He he allows demons to go into pigs. Well, what's the deal with this story? Well, today, as we work our way through this passage, we're going to answer that question. Why is this passage here? What is it teaching us? And while we do that, we will break our text down into our three points today. So the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus comes into contact with a demon-possessed man. And while this is interesting in and of itself, it becomes even more interesting because this man, this demon-possessed man, identifies Jesus. And it isn't just that he knows his name is Jesus. It's that he refers to Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. That's an important title, and it's a significant statement, and it's coming from demons. And so right away, with this first point, we get a clue as to the purpose of Luke sharing the story with us. Secondly, we see the power of Jesus displayed in freeing this man 
from this demon possession. And we get another glimpse as to why the inclusion of this story in the book of Luke is taking place. It's because this isn't just any ordinary demon possession story. The man is possessed by many demons, and yet Jesus has power over them. And finally, the man is freed from the possession that has plagued him for what we read is a long time. And his response is one of joy. It's one of gratitude. As we look at this narrative, we see that the man who is freed from this terrible affliction understands how he has been made free. And he naturally desires to follow Jesus everywhere. But what does Jesus do? Jesus sends him back to his home and tells him to proclaim to those there what has been done for him. So as we come to the beginning of our passage today, there's something I wanted to draw out that I find rather interesting about this story. Now the reason I think this is interesting is because of where we left off a few weeks ago in verse 25. Jesus has just calmed a storm. What an amazing miracle. He had, in a very real way, shown that he was God in human flesh because he had power over nature itself. And you will recall the response of the disciples. Who is this who commands even winds and water and they obey him? That was a profound story and a profound statement by the disciples. If you and I were making up this story, and you and I got to that point in the narrative where Jesus calms the storm, we would place something else after the event if we were writing the story, right? Jesus would have this amazing power even over nature, so Jesus is now going to overtake the people around him, the people who are hurting the oppressed, the people who are going after those who have no voice, they are now going to suffer because the mighty one of God even has power over nature. He's going to come and take over this earth. That's how you and I would write the story. Jesus would reign over all of his foes that oppose him and over his disciples. If he has the power to calm the storm, he has the power to calm these people who are rebelling against him. That's the natural story that you and I, in our human minds, would write if if we were guiding the narrative. Instead, what do we have here in the text of Luke 8? It's rather ordinary, right? Extremely ordinary. And it reminds us of just how ordinary the ministry of Jesus was. Even after the most profound of miracles... There isn't fanfare or anything. It's just business as usual. The boat keeps going. They get to the other side. They continue to do ministry. Now, I often point this out, but what we know of the ministry of Jesus is is pretty limited, isn't it? Four Gospels with a lot of the same stories and and not as much teaching as, as we would likely expect. And this clues us in to just how ordinary the ministry of Jesus was. Yet he did extraordinary things. But it's never flashy or fancy. It shows us his humanity. And while the point of the miracles is to show us the divinity of Jesus, we come to understand that his mission was not to do exciting signs and wonders to show off or anything like that. But instead, the point of the miracles was to show us that he was the one 
the one that was to come, the one who is to come and bring salvation to the people of God. And he would do this by living an ordinary life in our flesh and, and dying and paying the, the wrath of God for our sin on a Roman cross in our very own ordinary flesh. And so even after this astounding activity of calming the storm that we read about in earlier parts of Luke 8, we still see that Jesus and his disciples are out here doing ordinary things, traveling, doing the ordinary work of his teaching ministry. But this doesn't mean that that astounding and extraordinary things weren't regularly happening in the course of his ministry. They were. They were showing people the divinity of Jesus and his power. Because we, once again, even in the ordinary course of things, see that Jesus comes into contact with an opportunity to do something extraordinary. And we see it clearly here. He gets out of the boat, and he's met by this man who has demons. And Luke, Luke paints a very vivid picture for us here, doesn't he? Initially, we imagine a regular Joe walking up to Jesus, but, but soon Luke gives us a mental picture that we probably don't like too much because he doesn't have any clothes on, right? It, it shows us how dire this situation is. This possession, this demon possession, had affected this man dramatically. We read that he has lost the normal decency of, of wearing clothes, He's not well. And so we imagine someone who is described as naked and, and lives among the tombs. And as you, as you conjure up a mental image here, you're probably imagining somebody who's absolutely filthy, somebody who's absolutely incapable of caring for himself in any capacity. And before we consider the interaction that he has with Jesus, I want us to think about the very human element of this man. This man is possessed, and everything has been taken from him. It isn't just that he doesn't live in a house, and that he's dirty, that he's naked. What is happening to this man has likely caused separation from his family, from those that he loves. He's been separated not only from his family, but he's been separated from the community as a whole. This man is an absolute outcast, and this is brought out for us by the fact that we're told that he lives among the tombs. He's dirty, he's naked, he lives among the tombs. And I think it's important that as we consider who this man is and what he is experiencing, I think it's important that we stop and consider just how much you and I have in common with this man. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're demon-possessed, that we're naked, or that we're dirty, but let's think about the state this man is in before he comes into contact with Jesus. Because we're like him. In our sin, we are naked before God in our guilt. We are unclean. We are dead in our sins. We're separated from God. Apart from Christ, we're essentially walking among the dead. And so this man is a picture of you and I, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't he? And so let's see what happens when this man comes into contact with the Lord. We find that he comes up to Jesus, and we see that the demon that has possessed him is actually able to identify 
what you and I know about Jesus from reading the book of Luke. We've got inside knowledge because we've been following the story of Jesus from the announcement of his coming and his birth, and and we've seen all the teaching, all the miracles, but what we've learned about Jesus so far is confirmed here by the ones that possess this poor man. Notice the demon-possessed man knows the identity of Jesus. He knows not only his name, but he knows that great messianic title. He identifies Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. Even the demons know who Jesus is. They are fallen angels who have rebelled against God. They have, they have set themselves up against God Most High. But even in their rebellion against him, they know their place. The pleading here by the demon is interesting, isn't it? Even as the demons are tormenting this man, they don't want to be tormented. They know that they are in subjection to the one who is standing in front of them. They know their place. And what this tells us about Jesus is extremely important And it's a huge part of the story that Luke is telling here in his gospel, isn't it? This man has been like this. He's been afflicted for a long time. And no one else, no one else is able to do anything for him. Obviously, he can't even do anything for himself to get out of this position. But suddenly, this one who commands the wind and the water steps off of the boat. And now business is about to pick up. It's time. It is on. On sight, the demons know that they are in the presence of Messiah, the Son of the Most High God. And what we are meant to see here, what we are meant to feel here, is that Jesus is divine. While the story feels like a bit of a letdown from the events on the boat, it's the same idea that's being conveyed to us here, that Jesus is divine. He not only has power over nature, but we're now seeing that he has power over these evil spirits. As we have seen so many times, this is the point that Luke is making to us. And it seems as though if you aren't going to get the point, he's going to sharpen it a little bit more and continue to poke you with it, right? He is driving it home until we get it. And so as we move on to our second point, we see the power that Jesus has over these evil spirits. We see in verse 29 that that Jesus commanded the spirit to come out of him. And we get some further detail about just how sad the state of affairs is for this man. He has been possessed for a long time, we read. And he would be bound with chains. He'd be put in shackles. But the demons gave him a superhuman strength because we read that he would actually break the shackles And then the demons would lead him out into the wilderness. Again, just a a terrible picture of what has happened to this poor man. Again, the the imagery here of the separation that he has from the community, from his loved ones, from from everything. He's, He's among the dead. He's in the wilderness. And as Luke continues the story, we read that that Jesus asked the evil spirit to identify itself in the in this name and in Luke's explanation, we get a deeper glimpse into the significance of what's happening here. The reply to Jesus's request for information from this demon is that the name is Legion, and this lets us know that this man is littered 
with demons. Because a Roman legion had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of soldiers. And so we can infer that this man was possessed by thousands of demons. But we don't just dwell here on how bad this situation is for this man. This shows us that even a high number of evil spirits is in subjection to Jesus. These evil spirits can't gang up on Jesus and overpower him. Even a legion of demons are in subjection to the power of the Messiah. And we see the scope of that power in the request of these evil spirits. They beg Jesus not to relegate them to the abyss. They understand that the one in front of them can send them to the place where evil spirits are confined. And this is the point where the story turns into one of those strange stories, one of those interesting stories I was mentioning. It wasn't exactly normal up to this point with a naked guy possessed by a bunch of demons, but it becomes even stranger as the evil spirits beg to be cast into a herd of pigs. So as we consider this part of the story, we have to do some work here. We have, we have to remind ourselves of the cultural and of the religious elements that are at work here. This herd of pigs would have been considered to be ceremonially unclean to Jewish people. Now, you and I see them as ordinary animals, and we have wonderful thoughts of, of perhaps pork chops and bacon, right? That's, that's what we think of when we see herd of pigs. But in the first century, amongst Jewish peoples, in the mind of Jesus and his disciples, it was not kosher for Jews to even raise hogs. Even if they were going to sell them to the Gentiles who didn't care about such things. They they couldn't do this. This was against the law of Moses. They were not allowed to be keepers of pigs. Now, we aren't told if the pigs were owned by a Jewish person or not, but regardless, their presence among these people would have been looked down upon. And if you were a Hebrew person, your mindset probably would have been that the demons going into the pigs was an appropriate destination Because the unclean spirits were going into that which was unclean. And no longer could these unclean spirits torment the public at large. No longer could they go after the people. But they were in these unclean animals. So while it's a bit bizarre for you and I, in their first century Jewish minds, this actually makes a lot of sense. And so we see that Jesus fulfills the request of this legion of evil spirits. The divine power of the Messiah is vividly on display here as he gives the demons permission to go into the herd of pigs on the hillside. The pigs then proceed to race down the hill, and they're drowned in the lake. Again, interesting, strange story. Just bizarre, right? It shows the fixation of the demons on destroying those that they enter, and it also would have been seen as a fitting end to both the unclean spirits and the unclean animals. Regardless, the one thing that persistently comes through all of this in the text of Luke is the authority that Jesus has over all things. He has authority over nature. He has authority over unclean spirits. He has authority over sickness and disease. Jesus has all authority. The message being driven home to us is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God in human flesh. And as we move on to our final point, we see varying reactions to who Jesus is, to these divine signs. 
Now, as I was processing through this passage, I, I put myself as best I could into the shoes or the sandals, I guess, of the herdsmen. And I couldn't help but laugh. I mean, they most likely had no idea who this guy was getting off the boat. Maybe they didn't even see any of this interaction happening between Jesus and the demon-possessed man. They were probably just sitting around, doing their job, minding their own business, and suddenly all of the pigs are running into the lake and drowning themselves. Imagine being one of these herdsmen. Now that's a story that you tell your wife when you get home, right? You are not going to believe what happened. Goodness, I mean, that is crazy to think about. And you see here in their reaction that they, they run away. They tell folks around them what happened. And so those people do what people do. Once they hear this, they do the natural human thing. They go to gawk, right? That's what we do. Some things never change. But this desire that they have to see the incident causes them to see what Jesus has done in the life of this man who was possessed. I'm guessing people were aware of this guy. And when they saw him with clothes on and being in his right mind, they were afraid. You have to kind of chuckle at that statement by Luke, right? They were afraid that this guy wasn't naked, that this guy wasn't out of his mind. They were so used to his condition that they had fear at his being normal. People knew that something was up. This guy wasn't normally like this. Something amazing must have happened And the story was relayed to them that Jesus sent the evil spirits out of him, and so they asked Jesus to leave. What an interesting turn of events, right? Jesus clearly displays the power of God. And instead of being excited, the people ask him to leave? They ask him to depart? They they aren't comfortable with what Jesus is doing. This might be confusing to us, but let's think about this. This is a remarkable display of divine power. And you can understand why they might not want to be around it. Who knows what comes next? Today, the economic loss of a herd of pigs, what will tomorrow hold as this man comes with this divine power? And so Jesus gets into the boat. He goes back to where he came from. He grants the wishes of the people. If they don't want him around, he won't remain. But that isn't where Luke ends the story for us, is it? We've seen the reaction of the people who have seen the results of this marvelous event. But what about the one? What about the man who's been blessed by the presence of Jesus? We've seen here that he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. But now there are even more details for us. The man who was healed begs Jesus to allow him to follow him. Notice the same language being used as we saw further up the passage, the demons begged to get away from Jesus. The man who was freed from the evil spirit begs to be near him. Notice the contrast. Those who were unclean want nothing to do with Jesus. They beg to be away from him. The one who has been made clean begs to be near him. Notice what Luke is doing with the language here. This man knows that he has been remarkably rescued by the hand of the chosen one of God. He knows Jesus is the Messiah. And because of this, he wants to be around him. He wants to follow Jesus. But Jesus sends him away? What? 
This is almost as strange as the demons going into the herd of pigs, right? And running into the lake. This is Jesus. He tells people to follow him. And this man wants to, and he won't let him. Instead, he gives the man who desires to get into the boat a different task. He is told to return to his home and declare how much God has done for him. God has rescued him. And so he is to herald to the people around him what has happened. And we, we already know that this announcement will get the attention of people. He's already drawn attention just by sitting at the feet of Jesus with clothes on. As he returns to his home and is now able to coherently tell people of how he has been rescued, imagine the response. People will see the miracle and they will want to know more about this Jesus who was able to free this man from his demon possession. And notice what he does. He does exactly as Jesus has commanded him to do. He is obedient to the one who has saved him. Now that's an important application for us. But before we take a look at that, I want to draw something out quickly here in the text. Notice the words that Luke uses here at the end of this passage. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus tells him to go and declare how much God has done. Then what does Luke tell us about what the guy does? Luke tells us that he did what was asked of him, and we're told that he proclaimed what Jesus has done for him throughout the whole city. I think you probably saw what Luke did here. Jesus says, tell what God has done. What does Luke say that he does? He tells what Jesus has done. You see what Luke did. Once again, we have confirmation that Jesus is divine. This is the message we have being driven home to us throughout the book of Luke. We've seen it from the beginning of this gospel, and it continues here through chapter 8 as we have seen Jesus showing his authority not only over wind and the water, but that he also has authority over a legion of evil spirits. Jesus is God. And this is being displayed for us over and over and over for us throughout the book of Luke. It shows us that he has the power to save. And as we close up today, we are reminded of his saving work for us. As I pointed out, while we are not possessed, while we are not naked roaming around the tombs, we have been saved from the nakedness of our sin, and we are no longer roaming among the dead in our trespasses and sins. Our understanding of that great truth is why we are here today. When we know what Jesus has done to rescue us, we desire to sit at his feet. We desire to praise him for what he has done. Just as the man was saved, we too have been saved, and the command for us is the same as it was for this man who was possessed by the demons. Declare how much God has done for you. The gratitude that we have for the salvation that we have received in Christ leads us to share that message with those around us. And so we come to hear the word of the Lord proclaimed to us that we might step away from here with the knowledge of what God has done for us so that we might declare it to the world. Now this seems like an insurmountable task, but it begins with our families, it begins with our friends, and from there we continue to grow in boldness to proclaim 
the salvation that God has blessed us with in Christ. And so today, we're blessed to come to the table. The Apostle Paul tells us that when we come to the Lord's table, we proclaim his death until he comes again. So we come then to the table knowing that this is a public declaration of faith. And we trust that through the word that we have heard and the elements that we receive, that God is at work in us. And so may we depart from here, nourished with the word and with the sacrament, that we might do as the man that Jesus saved today did. Declare what Jesus has done, that a lost and dying world might hear and believe. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.